0: We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited-edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details.
1: Welcome to First Move. Great to be with you this Thursday with a look at our top stories and guests coming up over the next hour, including Bring Russia Back to Reason. That's the message from French president to China's powerful leader. The latest on Emmanuel Macron's meeting with Xi Jinping just ahead. Plus, renewed tension over Taiwan. President Tsai meeting with the U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in California just hours before a group of U.S. lawmakers arrived for a visit in Taipei. Beijing's reaction coming up. And we continue our alternative meat journey with a mammoth moment Yes, we'll speak to a firm producing a meatball derived from both mammoth and elephant DNA. Yum or yuck, you can decide later in the program. And ahead of our dip into the ice age, time for a tour of Wall Street. US stocks pointing to a slightly softer open after fresh labor market data. New unemployment claims coming in higher than expected last week. The response... I think, is cautious. Weaker data is now raising concerns of a harder landing for the US economy, offsetting earlier hopes, I think, that the Fed might then ease back on rate hikes. So it's always this balancing act. If you remember since the recent banking turmoil, we've been closely watching some of this more high frequency data just to judge the degree to which banks are perhaps tightening loan standards, making it harder for small businesses to borrow. And then to what degree that is hurting hiring. You can see now we're sort of tilted to the downside. And a quick check of the market action too across in Asia, Tokyo and Seoul each lost more than 1% on Thursday following that weaker session in the United States. On Wednesday, Shanghai and Hong Kong little changed on their reopening. Wowzers, we have a lot to cover this Thursday and we do begin in China. French President Emmanuel Macron has told his Chinese counterpart he's counting on him to reason with Russia and help end the war in Ukraine. Xi Jinping hosted the French leader for talks in Beijing. China's president said he's determined to promote peace talks, leading to a settlement in Ukraine. Meanwhile, the European Union's Ursula von der Leyen is also in the Chinese capital. She met Premier Li Chang to discuss EU-China trade. Joining us now is CNN's Will Ripley, who's in Taipei for us. Will, we often discuss the importance of economics in this relationship as perhaps a determinant or a limiting factor in how hard nations like EU nations can push China with regards to the war in Ukraine. But it was a stern message. A potent message, perhaps, from Emmanuel Money Macron. Money talks. I mean, that is certainly <laughs> the
2: case. You're, you know, Emmanuel Macron brought with him a huge trade delegation, and so obviously he is looking to uh, bolster business ties with Beijing. And yet, at the same time, he's also asking, uh, you know, for Xi Jinping's help with his best bud, Vladimir Putin, uh, to talk Putin. Uh, you know, come to his senses, come to reason. You know, figure out a way to end this war. Um, at the same time, though, the United States uh, believes that. China might seriously be considering, or might already covertly be supplying more weapons to Russia to try to give them some sort of edge on the battlefield. Perhaps analysts say, with the goal of of giving Russia a better uh, position when they go into negotiations uh, to try to force Ukraine to let Russia essentially keep the territory that it stole. Uh, you know, remember China put out that 12-point peace plan for Ukraine, and and uh, you know when Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, tried to talk to Xi Jinping, he still has yet to publicly respond. Uh, but Mr. Macron, in addition to talking about uh, Ukraine, as I mentioned, talking about business, talking about uh, talking about the importance of the EU-China, uh, you know, economic relationship. Obviously, uh, Mr. Macron is not one of the mindset that there should be some sort of a decoupling with the Chinese economy, and so as a result, he got a true grand welcome in uh, you know Beijing, communist party style. Julia, this is the, the elaborate military parade that he, uh, you know, was able to uh, oversee along with uh, President Xi before they went in for those closed-door talks. And uh, they're gonna be having a three-way discussion with Ms. Uh, von der Leyen, who's, uh, she's also in Beijing. Uh, Macron actually invited her, uh, you know, just kind of underscoring the importance of trying to you know, bring the West, i.e., you know, the EU, closer to Beijing at a time that, that really tensions are at an all-time high, although particularly with the US.
1: Made some very potent comments in, in recent weeks that EU-China relations will be determined by the war in Ukraine. So it's a sort of good cop, bad cop relationship, perhaps, uh, as part of this negotiation. Now, Beijing juggling many different things. And we did see a response to the talks that took place in Los Angeles between House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Taiwan's president as well. Will, But when I look at the seeming response that we've had from China, at least for now, a far cry from what we saw last August after The former House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, attended and and headed to Taipei herself.
2: Uh, Yeah, it it was within... Maybe an hour. I mean, it was so uh, soon after Nancy Pelosi's plane took off that the military drills encircling Taiwan were announced by the People's Liberation Army. And then of course they went on for a very long period of time. They fired a uh, ballistic missile over this island along with a scores of missiles kind of in this island's direction. Some of them uh, landed in Japan's exclusive economic zone. Uh, this time around, uh, you know, state media was pretty muted on this in the lead up. Uh, they weren't making a big deal out of it, partially because uh, this is an important time politically for Beijing to try to warm up a little bit with Taiwan, particularly with the opposition party to President Tsai's DPP, the, the KMT, which was the ruling party for decades here. Their, their former president uh, was actually invited uh, to, to go to the mainland for a five-day tour. It's the first time since 1949 that's happened, and it happened to coincide with President Tsai's, uh, you know, transit in the United States. This might be the KMT signaling to Taiwanese voters that if they they were voted in as a president, the next president. So if, if President Tsai's party lost the election or her, their candidate lost the election, uh, then perhaps the KMT would allow for better business ties and better, more peaceful coexistence with China. Although, of course, uh, you know, what the DPP has always claimed is that the more you give China, the more they're going to take, the more that they're going to to push it, so that's why even though President Tsai did meet with Speaker McCarthy in California and not here in Taipei, clearly, uh, you know, Taiwan is still stinging, uh, you know, from the from the fallout, the military fallout of the, of the Pelosi visit in terms of the you know Chinese incursions and them crossing even farther uh, across the uh, median line that divides the Taiwan Strait that both sides had respected, uh, you know, until last August for you know since 1954 uh but but moving forward uh it's really going to be uh, a case of which political party uh, is, in, is in control and how does that how does that potentially shift the dialogue and the, and the relationship between the mainland and Taiwan, Julia?
1: Yeah, such vital points there. I guess one could also make the, uh, the suggestion that it's difficult for uh, the Chinese to respond at this moment with Emmanuel Macron and uh, Ursula von der Leyen present in um, Beijing at this moment. They don't moment want to distract too, so from it. I was about to say, we'll no. caveat that slightly. Um, Will Ripley, great to have you with us as always. Thank you. And as we are saying there, China condemning the historic meeting between Taiwan's president and U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. The White House downplayed the event, while Speaker McCarthy himself remained defiant.
3: Well, my first message to China, there's no need for retaliation. But the one thing I would say to China, too, at no time, I am the Speaker of the House. There is no place that China is going to tell me and where I can go or who I can speak to, whether you be foe or whether you be friend.
1: And Lauren Fox is on Capitol Hill for us once again. Lauren, great to have you with us. Um, Playing down the significance of this meeting, but I think the symbolism, the political statement is clear and it's bipartisan too.
4: Yeah, and I think that bipartisanship is really one of the most important factors to lay out here, in part because Kevin McCarthy was not just going out on a limb and meeting with Taiwan's president as a Republican. He viewed this as an important moment for Congress as a whole and for the U.S. government as a whole. And he wanted to make that message clear that he is not going to be told by China where he can go, who he can talk to. In fact, there was a very illuminating moment in which he Was asked at the press conference if he would ever go to Taiwan, like House Speaker Nancy Pelosi did last August. He said that there's no plan to go in the immediate future, but he said he would not rule it out, although he noted once again that if he went, it would be on a bipartisan basis. He would not be going alone. He would want to be flanked by Republicans and Democrats, like he was yesterday. Very symbolic as he talked about the fact that he's going to continue supporting, and Democrats are going to continue supporting. Transferring arms to Taiwan. And, you know, there was a discussion about making that process more expeditious. There was also a discussion about continuing the trade relationship with Taiwan. But obviously, the biggest Thing to take away from yesterday's summit is that this was bipartisan despite the fact that on Capitol Hill you have so many domestic issues that tear the parties apart whether it's investigations into President Joe Biden whether it's immigration or the debt ceiling fight this issue Kevin McCarthy underscored was important to send a message to the world to China to Taiwan that the United States is united
1: yeah the bipartisan political statement is most definitely clear Lauren, great to have you with us. Thank you. To Israel now, closing its northern airspace to civil aviation after a barrage of rockets were fired from Lebanon into Israel. That's according to the IDF, who also say that those rockets were intercepted. This just comes hours after Israeli police stormed the Al-Aqsa Mosque, one of Islam's holiest sites, for a second time late Wednesday. Video from social media showed armed Israeli forces approaching the mosque, then entering using stun grenades to force worshippers inside to leave. CNN's a Gold in Jerusalem for us now. us you can talk us through the events uh, overnight once again, but just can you bring us up to speed on any further details on that rocket fire?
5: Yeah, actually, Julia, and we don't know that all of those rockets were intercepted because we are Mm -hmm. seeing some images on social media of damage to areas of northern Israel, including things like rockets in the street and some buildings that have damage. Not clear yet whether these were shrapnel from rockets being intercepted or rockets managing to actually land. And we do know of at least emergency services saying one person being Mm -hmm. injured, at least from shrapnel, and at least one other person being injured while running to a shelter. This all started happening in the last hour, hour and a half or so when we started hearing the sirens that were going off in northern Israel, we get alerts on this app that we have that tells us when sirens are going off in northern Israel, and it was just for at least 10 minutes. It felt like there was just a constant stream of these alerts going off, indicating that rockets were coming from Lebanon into northern Israel, and this is happening on the western side. So, of course, a lot of these questions are who is firing these rockets? Because while Hezbollah is largely in control of southern Lebanon, there are elements of Palestinian refugee camps and Palestinian militant groups that are located out there, but in the of the Israeli military, everything happens there with at least the tacit approval or full approval of Hezbollah. Now, we have to assume this is in reaction in response to what we saw happening at the Al-Aqsa Mosque over the last couple of days or so when the Israeli police raided the mosque twice in 24 hours. They say to remove a people who had barricaded themselves inside with fireworks and stones and were engaging violently, but even just the act of the Israeli police entering the mosque, let alone in using stun grenades and rubber bullets and, you know, forcefully arresting people that is seen as incredibly provocative and offensive and is a red line for not only much of the Arab and Muslim world, but especially for these militant groups. And remember, this is what helped spark that 11 day war in 2021 with Hamas led militants in Gaza and Israel was these types of clashes at Al-Aqsa. But the major concern here is that every Israeli security official I've ever spoken to, whenever you talk about what Worries them most. It's not Gaza. It's Hezbollah in Lebanon in the north because Hezbollah's arsenal is so much more powerful and bigger than what Hamas can ever potentially even dream to have. And so there is a major concern that if Hezbollah was involved in any way, how will the Israeli military respond? And then will this somehow escalate into a full blown war? Julia.
1: Mm. How does gold in Jerusalem for us there? Thank you for that report. In San Francisco, a search is underway for the killer of Bob Lee, the man who founded Cash App. Lee was fatally stabbed early on Tuesday morning. CNN's Veronica Miracle has the latest.
6: A crime scene blocks from Google's San Francisco office. The victim, 43-year-old Bob Lee, a tech executive himself, the founder of Cash App and the first chief technology officer of Square. Lee was stabbed Tuesday, friends and police say, while walking in a downtown neighborhood around 2 a.m.
7: You know, we were supposed to hang out tomorrow night, so that's a little strange. Um, it like just happens, my mind's still processing it, you know. When you lose someone, you're just like, damn, this is uh, not expected. I know he had two, uh, two daughters as well that he loved.
6: Lee's father honored his son on Facebook, writing, Bob would give you the shirt off of his back. Bob Lee had recently moved to Miami with his father, who wrote, I'm so happy that we were able to become so close these last years. Lee was known in the industry as Crazy Bob for his tenacious energy. His latest employer, the crypto firm MobileCoin, tweeted this photo calling Lee a child of dreams and whatever he imagined, no matter how crazy, he made real.
0: This is not a city where anybody should fear for their lives at 2.30 in the morning.
6: The killing has renewed anger in San Francisco over perceptions that the city isn't safe. On Twitter, Elon Musk claimed many people I know have been severely assaulted, then pushed the district attorney to do more to incarcerate repeat violent offenders.
0: And for too long, the leaders of San Francisco have ignored the basics.
6: Joel and Guardio worked on the successful recall campaign of the previous progressive DA last year, then won a city supervisor seat, defeating the incumbent by running on a public safety agenda.
0: Residents are feeling like the city is not working for them. And they just want clean streets, safe streets, and good schools. And they don't understand why the city hasn't been able to deliver.
6: Still, violent crime overall is falling in San Francisco compared to previous decades. This is the 12th homicide this year, according to police data. Baltimore, with fewer people, reports nearly 70. But property crime is high in San Francisco. In 2020, there were more than 4,000 incidents per 100,000 people. That's nearly three times the rate of New York City. Friends of Bob Lee say all that matters now is the one crime that has them in mourning.
7: He's a humble, nice guy, you know, talks about his kids a lot, family, just a generally good guy.
1: Okay, coming up here on First Move, high-stake talks in Beijing over the war in Ukraine. We'll discuss how much leverage Europe truly has. And later, is this the most rarefied meat on the planet? Mammoth. No, this is not a late April Fool's joke. We'll discuss with the company behind that wild woolly bite. Next. Welcome back to First Move. Chinese President Xi Jinping has called for peace talks to resume over the war in Ukraine. It follows a meeting with France's Emmanuel Macron in Beijing. The French president said he was confident she could act as a mediator.
8: I know I can count on you to bring Russia to its senses and everyone to the negotiating table.
1: Joining us now is Andrew Small. He's senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund's Indo-Pacific program. Andrew, fantastic to have you on the show. Do you think Emmanuel Macron truly believes that Xi Jinping has any intention of helping bring about peace and in a manner that's acceptable to the West? I suppose we should be clear. Xi Jinping's smiling face in Moscow two weeks ago perhaps suggests differently.
9: Yes, I think Macron personally seems to have a certain amount of confidence in his capacity to nudge Xi Jinping to to occupy a more constructive role on this. I think generally in Europe, there's a lot of skepticism about this. But we've seen Macron in the past, in the run-up to the war, in his efforts with Vladimir Putin, and even further back in his wooing efforts with President Trump in a very different context. He, he believes in his own kind of personal capacity to do these things. But I I think there's also just an effort at the moment to show that all channels that can be exhausted are fully exhausted on this. And I think it reflects also a lot of concern about the deepening China-Russia relationship um, and a real sense on the European side that there needs to be an additional push with China at the moment to ensure particularly that ties between China and Russia don't deepen when it comes to areas such as lethal aid.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so many points that we can pick up on in there. If it is about tough talk, why take the enormous business contingent? It was almost essential then to take Ursula von der Leyen as the EU representative just to ensure that this wasn't um, a a meeting between Emmanuel Macron and and Xi Jinping that is about France also leveraging the business opportunities here because it kind of weakens the argument and the push towards uh, efforts to promote peace in Ukraine when you're, you're there for business purposes too.
9: It does, and I think even with the Commission President there, of course it muddied the message because that's what China will see, that despite Xi Jinping's highly contentious trip to Moscow and reaffirmation of support to Putin in the middle of this war, that barely a couple of weeks afterwards, France arrives with a substantial business delegation, um, and the long list of contracts that was um, just announced today as a result of this visit, which even the German Chancellor on his trip um, um Didn't announce. Um, But nonetheless, I think um, that has at times been compared to a good cop, bad cop routine between the two of them on this trip. um, Ursula von der Leyen, the Commission President, uh, gave a very forceful speech, probably the most forceful by any European leader on China that we've seen in recent years. talking about how China's becoming more assertive, internationally more repressive at home, and that it means a significant recasting of Europe's relationship with China, and a de-risking, which she talked about today, a rebalancing of the economic relationship to reduce certain dependencies on China and reduce the risks of transfers of sensitive technologies. But that still leaves the door open for a very large commercial relationship between the two sides. Um, But all of that, nonetheless, in terms of being able to send a singular message that says, that um, China's relationship with Russia and the security risks to Europe from the war in Ukraine are of paramount importance. Of course, it still has the effect of undercutting that.
1: Yeah, I was about to say, for for some of these nations, it's not de-risking at all. In fact, the the reliance and the relationship's going in in the other direction. Do you think, um, as you point out, we have a whole list of contracts signed on this visit between France and China that in some way it's Uh, prevented Europe expressing an appropriate level of concern over the provision of potential weaponry from China to Russia. I mean, what are Europe's red lines?
9: I think on that front, the messaging has been... Clearer. I think the harder thing has been to navigate what else is going on in the China-Russia relationship, because from Russia's perspective, a lot of what China is doing already—the economic backstop that it provides, the financial support, the dual-use transfers—the have been taking place on such a large scale, the political support, the diplomatic support. In some ways, these are even more important than the question of whether China transfers artillery ammunition. Important, though, I think that question is right now. Um, But I think the one message that has been delivered consistently on the European side has been that um, lethal aid to Russia would cross a red line and that it would have have detrimental impact across the entire Sino-European relationship. It would basically turn China into the enable in a much more direct way of security threats to Europe, and this wouldn't just translate into sanctions on specific entities that were making these transfers, it would have implications across uh, the entire economic relationship, because I think it's very different if you think about what de-risking would mean in the context of a tightening Sino-Russian military nexus versus the situation we have now. So I think those messages were delivered relatively clearly. I think the harder thing has been to calibrate how to handle China in a context in which, even if it doesn't deliver weapons to Russia over the coming months, um, this is a relationship that is, is growing closer. And China is continuing to act as an enabler for uh, Russian capacities to continue to prosecute this war.
1: Let's move on and talk about another hot button issue, because I, I can't disagree with any of that. Um, Taiwan. And China's response to the recent meeting between the um, House leader, Kevin McCarthy, and also a U.S. contingent now in Taipei for business and political meetings as well. A far more muted response, at least for today, from China than we saw last August.
9: Yes, well, we're still waiting um, on, on this because, of course, with the, the various guests in town at the moment, um, I think... It would have been rather difficult to go ahead with the sort of um, performance that we saw um, around um, Speaker Pelosi's visit. Um there's actually a fair cluster of diplomatic um, engagements taking place in, in the coming stretch. I, I think we may even have Lula coming through town. We've got other Europeans coming through. Um, so the timing of being able to respond, I think, has been made more complicated by the fact that Xi Jinping and the Chinese government generally have, have been going through this process of kind of diplomatic reengagement with the world after zero COVID. But I think the concern on the Chinese side is still um, they want to be able to show some sort of forceful Response. They've still made these kinds of threats about not standing idly by. I think they were waiting to watch the press conference and, and the meeting with um, uh, Speaker McCarthy and 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 saying when to see whether there was any pretext that might be given um, that would give them the opportunity to or justification for for moving ahead with more than we've seen, which is just you know some there's live fire drills going on, there's some evidence of naval activity and, and, and things, but nothing comparable to what we saw uh, before. But I don't think. They They've been given that excuse. So I think it's going to be harder for them in a period in which they are trying to go through this economic and diplomatic re-engagement effort right now to be able to replicate what they did, let alone do anything worse.
1: Yeah, the revolving door of diplomacy um, also includes members of um, of the Middle East as well. I mean, one area where the West has not been successful was bringing the the Saudis and the Iranians to the table for, what, the first time in, in seven years. And there's representatives from those nations in Beijing at this moment as well. What do you make of that?
9: Well, I mean, I think it's been very helpful for China to be able to position itself um, as publicly as it's been able to on this um, Saudi-Iranian deal. Um, I think in practice, they they did help to close the agreement between the two sides. It's not that China didn't play a role on this, um, but a lot of the legwork had been done before uh, the Chinese engaged with with, with this. Um, And I think a lot of the momentum in that instance um, had really come from the two parties themselves and some of the Iraqi mediation that had taken place in advance of uh, the the direct Chinese role. So um, it was a modest but consequential role that that China played in in closing this out. I think its wider significance in terms of China as a peace broker or any hopes that this could translate into some of the other contexts that people have been talking about it, particularly when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, I think are rather overblown. But it does indicate a willingness to step up, particularly in the Middle East, um, but also to start to try and put some meat behind the global security initiative that is really turning into the new signature set of projects for Xi Jinping uh, in the way that the Belt and Road Initiative was uh, years before. Um, And and I think they've been able to use this um, Saudi-Iranian deal to to really trumpet that and portray this as an alternative model to the Western hegemonic approach to these matters. Um, And the Saudis and the Iranians have been happy to hand it to them.
1: Yeah, it certainly signifies uh, warmer relations with these nations than uh, perhaps the United States currently enjoys at this moment. Um, Andrew, fantastic to get your insights. Thank you. Andrew Small, Senior Fellow at the German Marshall Fund there. We'll speak soon. Welcome back to First Move with U.S. stocks now open for business and investors digesting the latest U.S. jobs data. There's the picture, as we can see, tilted to the downside. Let me just give you the headlines on what we saw. New claims for unemployment benefits totaled 228,000 for the week ended April 1st. That number is higher than was expected. This is credit conditions have tightened following the recent turmoil in the US banking sector. Rahel Solomon joins me now. Rahel, and this is exactly what we were looking for. Signs that perhaps tightened borrowing Mm -hmm. conditions for some of these small businesses mean that they're less willing to hire or even let people go. A warning sign, perhaps.
10: Perhaps right, Julie, because this is the first place where we would see layoffs in government data. Right, this is the first, uh, most real-time look at what's happening in the labor market, and what we saw in this report that was released this morning, as you said, was that first-time claims were above economists' expectations, but were actually a decline from the week prior. But take a listen to this: the week prior, Julie was actually revised up by about forty-eight thousand, that level coming in at two hundred and forty-six thousand. So, what does this mean? Well, Goldman Sachs believes, according to a research note yesterday that this is actually more a reflection of seasonal factors, of a technical distortion, as the report po- points out, rather than a sharp jump in the true pace of claims. And to put this in context, before the pandemic, Julia, the average, the four-week average was actually closer to about 218,000 per week. So, We are higher, but not significantly so. Perhaps uh, one reason we're not seeing a really drastic reaction in the markets. But what does this really mean beyond what it means, of course, to ordinary Americans? Well, critically, it's what it means to the Fed, because the Fed, of course, has talked and Jay Powell, of course, has talked so much over this last year about the imbalance in the labor market, that there were simply too many jobs and not enough workers to fill those jobs. And that type of imbalance creates a real upward wage pressure and the concern that that could continue to fuel inflation. So, uh, that's why all eyes are on this. Uh, was it a sign that we're seeing significant weakening? Perhaps not, but tomorrow is a new day, and tomorrow by the way brings with it a new job report, a major job report. It is the job report for March, and I can tell you that the expectation is that we will add the US economy will add 240,000 jobs, that the unemployment rate will remain steady at 3.6%. Julia, critically important here, if in fact we do see jobs added at about that 240,000 level, That would be the lowest we have seen in years. Maybe the Fed would like to see that. Maybe investors would like to see that because this is the last jobs report before we hear from the Fed in early May.
1: Yeah, it's just an incredibly strong and resilient labor market. Right now, that's what the data says. Yeah. Rahel, great to have you with us. Thank you. Rahel Solomon there. Now, we're also monitoring chaotic scenes in France as pension reform protests continue for an 11th day. In Paris, protesters holding red flares stormed the offices of investment giant BlackRock. Melissa Bell joins us now from the French capital. Melissa, no loss of energy, it seems, for these protesters. And you can see that on the streets today
3: a lot of determination. Those are the very dramatic images a little while earlier from Central Park of Paris. This is what's happening now, Julia. Let me just show you this crowd, this huge march that's now taken off from Invalide that you can see at the end over there and towards uh, the Place d'Italie. We will have to wait a lot longer before we get figures, but you can see that a lot of people have come out. Again, the union saying that they're absolutely united on this and intend to keep up their pressure uh, on the government. There were these talks that took place last night between the unions and the French government, they collapsed uh, on the grounds that the government says it's going to push through with this reform. Uh, the unions today saying that they intend to carry on for as long as they need to, to try and make the government to
1: Yeah, I think we've got those pictures actually of um, the protesters entering the, the Black Rock building. Melissa, what more can you tell us about that? Because what you're showing us here is it's very peaceful. There's music playing, but it did turn slightly violent. Yeah, there, there are the pictures.
3: That's right. What we've seen over the course of the last couple of weeks is that, remember, Juliet, you and I have been talking about this protest movement, these strikes since January. It is really the last couple of weeks when it has tended to turn more violent. This later uh, will undoubtedly do so as well. They tend to begin like carnivals. They tend to finish with tear gas consultation to the police. There's very dramatic picture. Those were railway workers who occupied uh, that bank with slogans saying that they believed it was their money that was being kept now from them. They managed to occupy it for 10 minutes before being kicked out. And it's a reminder of that much bigger presence of some of the more violent actors to try and organize these protests, to try and bring attention to what they say is their huge action. Not just the pension reform, it's the cost of the thing. it's inflation a lot of driving these protesters
1: out Yeah, Melissa, I was going to ask you what you're standing on, but I'm not sure you're going to be able to hear me and I don't want you to have to shout anymore, but um, rising above it there, I can see. Next time we'll come back and you'll be up a tree or something. You Stay safe. <laughs> 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 Melissa Bell, thank you for joining us from those Paris protests there. Stay safe. All right, still to come. On First Move, we're talking bizarre bites. How would you feel about eating mammoth meat? Yes, as in the woolly mammoth kind. We'll speak to a scientist redefining the term
8: mixed meat.
1: Welcome back to First Move. We've discussed lots of food on this show, from plant-based burgers to lab-grown shrimp. Next on the menu... Mammoth meat. And I'm not just talking about the size. Vow. An Australian Cultured Meat startup is on a mission to mix and match cells from unconventional species to create an entirely new kind of meat, all without slaughtering animals. The team made the mammoth meat wall by injecting mammoth DNA into the muscle cells of a sheep, stay with me, filling in a few gaps with African elephant DNA, the mammoth's closest non-extinct relative. It's not the only animal that the firm is experimenting with, but they say the hope is to draw attention to more planet-friendly eating options. And joining us now is James Ryle, Chief Scientist Officer at VOW, the startup behind the Mammoth Meatball. James, fantastic to have you on the show. Um, I think there will be some viewers that are completely stunned at this moment. We've all heard of cultivates for chicken, pork, beef, um, but mammoth, that's a statement.
7: Yeah, (laughs) <laughs> it is. And, and it's kind of the point of it, really, is mm. to do something so outrageous that um, it'll get people talking about cultured meat in general.
1: I mean, you, you also looked at the dodo, I believe.
7: Yeah, we did. We did. So the, the reason why we settled on the, the, um, the mammoth in the end was that there's, there's simply not enough dodo genetic material out there to be confident that if we made a, a dodo chicken nugget, for example... Um, that, that what we were actually presenting had any resemblance to the initial dodo protein. Um, so we were much more confident in the mammoth, and ultimately we decided to go with the, um, the mammoth myoglobin protein um, purely because of the, the amount of publicly available data.
1: I mean, there's not many people around the world that, that um, would consider eating an elephant. Um, so as confident as you are of the genetic sequencing of this, can we actually eat that? Can, can I mean, we've never eaten mammoth before. Can our stomachs even cope with this, or is that a stupid question?
7: So, no, it's it's a fantastic question. It's it's and it's a critically important one as well. I've I've actually seen a lot of um, coverage around the the mammoth meatball and the the scientists who created it being too scared to eat it. Um, and look, it's it's not that we're too scared. It's just that with any kind of novel food product, um, we have a number of really, really rigorous safety testing processes that we go through to ensure that anything that we're going to eat or taste or or serve up to consumers is incredibly safe. So the, the mantra that we sort of live and die by is if it's not safe, it's not food. Um, and at the moment, we just we don't know the safety behind the, the mammoth myoglobin protein because it's a, it's an extinct protein. It's not been around for five thousand years, so we just don't know what will happen if humans start eating this extinct protein.
1: Yeah, I mean there is some irony here. I mean, regulators are going to be saying we're perfectly happy for you to eat our man-made toxins for profit, quite frankly. But this, we're um, we're a bit concerned about. How do you even? And are you engaging regulators on this? How, how do you even prove it or have that conversation?
7: Yeah, and so, look, it's, it's much easier when you're not working with, um, with extinct animals and extinct proteins because you can, you can point to the safety information that exists within that meat itself. So what cultured meat actually does is you isolate a, a tiny little biopsy about the size of the top of your little finger, and then you isolate cells from that biopsy and you grow those cells in essentially what's, what looks like a giant beer vat. Um, so if you've ever, ever been to a brewery and seen where they um where they grow the beer, um that's where we grow cells in these large manufacturing facilities um and the cells are simply grown in in a fancy version of of gatorade um more than anything else. Um, and it turns <laughs> out interesting side note cells grow better in red gatorade than blue gatorade.
1: Oh my gosh, clean food <laughs> enthusiasts are literally having a shocker at <laughs> <laughs> this. <laughs> this moment, um, speaking of gators, um, you also tried crocodile and, and quail. And I believe quail is going to be available in Singapore, if not yep. already. Yep. So we've,
7: yeah. we're just in the process of finalising our, our safety uh, regulatory approval through the Singapore um, Food Authority. And we expect within the next few months to be approved and starting to sell our very first product, which is going to be a Japanese quail based product. Um, and that'll be under our, our brand-new um, brand called um, Forged by Vow. Um, and if you want to be one of the first to, to experience that, um, that particular um, Japanese quail, then please jump on our website and sign up um, because the supply is going to... Sorry, demand will outstrip supply for at least the, the first several months or longer um, as we bring these products to market. And I think the the really exciting thing for the U.S. market is that we're beginning to see companies get approval from the FDA to start selling in the U.S. as well. Um, I know of two companies that have received and no questions asked from the FDA and are simply now waiting on approval from the USDA. So Americans can expect to see this on their market, um, I would say, within the next three to six months.
1: Wow. I mean, as you said in the beginning, this is about changing the nature of the conversation, I think, and, and our, our mindset and the behavioural change that's required for us to understand that we can't continue to eat over the next and coming decades. We can't continue to eat the, the way that we have and we have to find um, alternatives. Um,
7: yeah. But- and it's such a great point, because even though we, um, our, um, our farmers are doing an incredible job of shifting their farming to sustainable manners, and making incredible improvements in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and what they're doing for the environment. But you can't do that and also massively scale up um, the the amount of livestock you're producing um, to feed what is going to be a population of 10 billion people by the Mm. year 2050. So there needs to be additional sources of high-quality animal protein um, because we know that simply telling people you should switch to a plant-based diet is not... It's not a solution, um, or not, at least not a solution most people are interested in hearing about. Exactly.
1: So, That's so interesting. we exactly, need to meet I was going to ask you that. Do you think this is going to be more successful than plant-based alternatives? Because we saw all the enthusiasm and then some sort of caution and um, some of the excitement fade. You think this is the answer to that?
7: Absolutely. I mean, as, as someone who absolutely loves red meat, um, I give me a steak any day, absolutely. Um, I, I'm so excited about how good cultured meat actually tastes. And the, one of the exciting things for me is that when you take away the, the constraints that come with producing your meat inside an animal, the taste and the flavour profiles that you can achieve are so, so very different. That to what you can achieve by getting meat from the animal. We, 99.9999% of what we eat comes from four species. Are they really the tastiest and most nutritional species that we could be eating? Mm. Or is there something else in the other 5,000 mammals that we don't eat or the other 15,000 bird species that we don't eat? There's so much opportunity here for innovation um, and creating something that not only is as good as what's on market, but creating something that is actually better, better for us and better tasting as well.
1: Yeah, more nutritious food. So I was going to ask you about um, the cost and scaling up and, and raising money. But you just said something there that I think is very important about loving steak. You're never going to cultivate a piece of steak, though, are you? I mean, this is about sort of oh. mints or meatball or...
7: No, no, not at all. There's there's several companies working on beautiful mm-hmm. um, steaks um, and something that looks just as complex and fibrous and um, impressive as a really, really thick steak. Um, so complexity in products is going to, that'll be the second and third and fourth generation of products that we start seeing coming to market. Absolutely, the first couple will be mince-based, but the next couple are going to be um, all sorts of different um uh products that we're going to see and i i would very strongly imagine um if that's even a word um that we're going to see some things that turn up and look like ribeye and t- um, t-bone steaks
1: i've got about 30 seconds how long how long do we get a t-bone or a ribeye <laughs> <laughs> cultivated oh look
7: i I'm not sure. VOW is focused on innovating rather than replicating. But look, I, I would suggest within the next 12, 18, 24 months, you're going to see some really exciting products wow. come to market.
1: Wow. But just maybe not mammoth.
7: Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe not mammoth. <laughs>
1: <laughs> James, great to chat to you. Thank you. James Thanks Ratho, so much, you. Julia. Great to have you on. Chief Scientific Officer at VOW. Thank you. Okay, and from the Ice Age to the warm Augusta National Golf Club, Tiger Woods about to tee off at the 87th Masters. We're going to take you there next. Welcome back. I'm showing you live pictures of Paris, where it's around 4 p.m. in the afternoon. You remember we were just speaking to Melissa. It's the 11th day of protests against those pension reform changes and um, as we were discussing some of the protesters angrier than uh, than perhaps we've seen before particularly in daylight hours and you can see a number of protesters now clashing with police over on the left of the screen you can see there now some members of the police with and creating a, an effective shield wall rocks seemingly being thrown at them you can see that um, at their feet and surrounding them as well and they seem to have of barricaded themselves at the opening of what appears to be a restaurant there on the the left of the screen and those sort of missiles rocks articles are continuing to fly across the screen there and at them as you can see there they're raising their shields against them for now it's the protesters that seemingly are are surrounding those offices Um, we will bring you any further updates on that but as you can see it appears those protests at least in part pockets of violence that we're seeing now in Paris on those 11th day of protests. Okay let's move on. And the battle for the iconic green jackets, the Masters, the first major of the year, now underway in Augusta, Georgia. This is Tiger Woods' 25th appearance in the tournament. Don Riddell joins us from the world-famous Augusta Golf Club. Now, Don, you and I were talking about that conversation, or at least the question-and-answer session that you had with Tiger Woods, a more modest version. But today, a lot of people saying he seems to be in good shape
8: yeah absolutely i mean uh the guys that have played with him in the practice rounds say he's in great shape tiger himself says he's better than he was this time last year when he was just over a year uh, out from that dreadful car accident which could have claimed his leg Um, he was on the range a short time ago Uh, we were out filming him he looked good and you know what was really interesting and we've come to expect this of course but it never ceases to amaze us he came out and got cheers from the gallery of patrons just as he arrived on the driving range. Nobody else gets that kind of reception. He really is such a big deal here playing in his 25th Masters Tournament. He'll be teeing off in, uh, well, just uh, 25 minutes or so. And um, what are we going to expect from him? Well, he's going to keep us guessing.
10: I can hit a lot of shots, uh,
5: but the the difficulty for me is going to be the walking going forward. You know, it, it, it is what it is. Whether I'm a threat to them or not, who knows? You know, I, people probably didn't think I was a, a threat in 19 either. Uh, but it kind of turned out okay.
8: That certainly did turn out okay. 2019 was arguably his greatest uh, Masters victory it was absolutely sensational and just a reminder of what he's achieved here five green jackets second only to the great Jack Nicklaus he was the last player to win back to back green jackets 25th Masters he hasn't missed the cut here since the mid-90s so I think at the very least we're expecting certainly hoping that he'll stick around for the weekend and play four rounds of golf but there is no doubt that he is the biggest draw here even though he's nowhere near the top of the world rankings these days yeah,
1: that- cheering crowds going to help carry him Don Riddell great to have you with us thank you and that's it for the show if you've missed any of our interviews today they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages as always search for at J Chatterley CNN and that's it from Miles connect the world with Becky Anderson It's up next